Section 37 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 The Popish Terror and the Triumph of the Court. Part 8. There was other evidence of the perfect triumph of the reaction. The day of Russell's execution saw the publication of The Judgment and Decree of the University of Oxford passed in their convocation against certain pernicious books and damnable doctrines destructive to the sacred persons of princes their state and government and of all human society oxford was resolved that on this occasion at least cambridge should not be first in the field that civil authority is originally derived from the people that there is any compact between the prince and his subjects which if broken by one party may be broken by the other, that misgovernment by the prince forfeits his right to govern, these doctrines were utterly condemned. The teaching of the Church of England was submission to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, submission, clear, absolute, and without exception, of any state or order of men. That these brave words were swallowed by their utterers five years later does not affect their meaning or effect at the moment they were but a prelude to the last legal wickedness of the reign for one more illustrious victim was to fall it was natural that charles should feel peculiar annoyance at finding that algernon sidney had been acting with russell and his friends since the permission given to him to return to england had been a conditional act of grace but sidney's execution like that of russell or stafford was a judicial murder his treatise on government was found in manuscript in his room and it was decided by jeffreys now lord chief justice that this manuscript might rank as the second witness required it was pointed out that it could not be criminal for a man to write down his thoughts the prosecution answered and we seem to have returned to the days of thomas cromwell that even to think such things was high treason once more charles let the laws take their course and sidney died with the same surliness wherewith he lived or in burnet's words with an unconcernedness that became one who had set up marcus brutus for his pattern by the executions of russell and sidney the story of the running fight between parliament and prerogative was closed with dramatic emphasis the victory of the crown was notified in language which could not be mistaken and it was not called in question for the rest of the reign had james possessed a little of his brother's shrewdness and imagination his power to gauge the strength of the forces arrayed against him and the pliability which results from the absence of any effective religious faith had he been able to interpret the lessons of the past to regard his creed as on sufferance and to avoid all appearance of aggression had he in fact even shown ordinary common sense it is we hold certain that he would have retained his throne unchallenged for his lifetime the shaftesbury section of the whig party had gone and men of the schools of danby and halifax would probably have been willing to accept and to maintain the succession which they had supported when the exclusionist agitation was at its height and to look past james to his protestant children but that the intense protestantism with which the nation was informed 
represented by the most anti-papal of all forces, the Anglican Church, would have cast away the verbiage of the Oxford Manifesto and refused to bear any longer with the anomaly of a popish king, that, we believe, is as little to be doubted. For the remaining criminal there was, of course, different treatment. Monmouth was at least as open to prosecution as Russell or Sidney, though he had opposed any resort to force. He was allowed to remain in hiding while Russell's trial was proceeding, and when he offered to come forward and take his chance by his side, Russell sent word that it would not help him to have his friends die also. Throughout the summer Monmouth lurked in England. Then Halifax, in view of the political outlook, took up his cause, and Charles, whose affection for Monmouth was becoming senile, readily pardoned him and restored him to full favour. But to prevent undue encouragement being thus given to the Whig remnant, a statement was demanded from him before the Privy Council which should leave no doubt of the genuineness of the conspiracy. This he gave on condition that it should not be used against his friends, and he then received a comprehensive pardon. Halifax farther prevailed upon him to write a letter to Charles, including the statement he had already made. Scarcely was this done, when stung by the reproaches of his friends he demanded the paper back. Charles, in vehement anger, more vehement than Bruce had ever seen, returned it, telling Halifax to bid him go to hell. Monmouth left the country, and henceforth remained as the guest of the Prince of Orange, but Charles's passion, as was ever the case, soon cooled down. During Monmouth's residence abroad, he continually sent him money and affectionate messages, and there is no doubt that in November 1684 Monmouth was in London under the advice of Halifax, and that he had a secret interview with the king. In January 1685 all was being arranged by Charles for his permanent return, and for the dismissal of James once more to Scotland. On February 3rd, Monmouth wrote from abroad, a letter from L. Halifax, that my business was almost as well as done, but must be so sudden as not to leave room for thirty-nines, James's party to counterplot. How he might have exclaimed like Bolingbroke in later years, how does fortune banter us? Even before those words were written, Charles was on his deathbed. There can be little doubt that had the king yielded to the advice of Halifax and Ormond, to summon Parliament, while the Rye House plot was fresh in men's minds, he would have secured a House of Commons devoted for the time to the principles of the Oxford and Cambridge manifestos. Sunderland, however, and James declared that the time was not yet ripe, and as Charles grew less disposed for business, James was every day becoming the actual reigning monarch. In the spring of 1684, Danby joined Halifax in urging a Parliament which was now due under the Triennial Act. But Halifax added, and this is the last illustration of the prevailing doctrine of ministerial responsibility, that if the king would not yield to this advice, he would himself find reasons for his breaking his promise. Ever since the Oxford dissolution, Charles had looked on with apparent indifference while Louis, without let or hindrance from England, was realizing his ambitious projects. In June he captured Luxembourg, the key to Germany and Holland, 
and Charles even went the length of congratulating him, while to all remonstrances he replied that his own affairs were in too ill a posture to allow him to intervene. The return for this complacence was scarcely what he expected. Louis had been long weary of being forced to court the King of England, and now triumphant, he not only declined to give Charles any further grants, but allowed the secret treaty to become known. There is no doubt that the policy of non-intervention and non-parliamentary rule which Charles had adopted, partly from his engagements with Louis, and partly from the indolence which grew more pronounced as the days went on, was for the internal advantage of the country. Freed from all political strife, England was daily growing richer. Trade was never so flourishing. Upon the statue erected to the king in the royal exchange there is an inscription extolling him as the British emperor, father of his country, conqueror in good and evil fortune, arbitrator for Europe, lord and protector of the sea, all of which, though in no particular true, testifies to the contentment of the merchant class. And Ronca relates how the elector of Brandenburg commended him as having, in a time of danger for all Christendom, raised his kingdom to the highest pitch of prosperity and established tranquillity at home. From the Rye House plot to the end of the reign, Charles practically abdicated all kingly functions. Halifax, Sunderland, Hyde, now Earl of Rochester, Godolphin, Danby, North and Jenkins, with James and Louise de Querouaille, somehow carried on the government. With their incessant strivings, their alliances, rivalries, enmities, and reconciliations, we have as little to do as Charles had himself. There is, however, in them one link with the past which for his sake we recall with satisfaction. From the early days of exile, the gallant Ormond, through good and evil repute, had remained untouched in honour and secure of Charles's esteem. There is no unworthy word, no foul or selfish action to stain his fair record. He had cared no more for temporary slights, for the momentary triumphs of despicable men like Buckingham, than for a breath of foul air. The affectionate respect which his character and his services had imposed upon Charles when he first joined him more than thirty years before remained unimpaired in the closing days of the reign. During these last two years of Charles's decadence, amid all the jostlings of rival politicians for place and power, and throughout the phases of his feelings for Monmouth, which varied from passionate anger to doting fondness, one influence reigned supreme. The empire of Louise de Querouaille over his affections had been undisturbed since Colbert had brought about the famous reconciliation with the Duchess Mazarin. It was at any rate so firm that she was now able to impose upon the worn-out Rouet all the tortures of a belated jealousy. In 1683, Philip of Vendôme, second son of the Duke of Vendôme and of Laura, the sister of Duchess Mazarin, visited the court. Louise showed an interest in this new guest so marked as to make Charles sulky and suspicious. But he had no power of revolt in him. He dared not remonstrate with her. He sent Sunderland instead to Philip to forbid his visits. For a few days he was obeyed, but for a few only. 
Charles then deputed Barillon to request his guest to take himself back to Paris. Philip demanded an interview, at which the king merely repeated his wish. A few days later, finding that he was still flouted, Charles sent the lieutenant of his guards to inform Philip that if he was not gone in two days he would be placed on board the packet if necessary by force. After some farther delay Philip thought well to comply, leaving Louise a prey to the apprehension that by showing her letters he might cause her serious annoyance. Louis the Fourteenth came to her aid. He told Philip in unmistakable terms that any disclosures to the disadvantage of Louise would bring down his resentment, and the king's resentment in the days of the Bastille and of Lettres de Cachet was not to be treated lightly. It was not, however, until June 1684 that Philip obeyed the positive order of his master to return at once to Versailles, and that his possible indiscretions ceased to be an object of dread to Louise. Louise de Queroy could have wished for nothing more effective to bind still faster the chains which held Charles. The king was observed to be more than ordinarily pensive, and his fondness to Lady Portsmouth increased much and broke out in very indecent instances. The king caressed and kissed her in the view of all people, which he had never done on any occasion or to any person formerly. Meantime she performed all the functions of Queen of England. In strict alliance with James and Rochester, she alone dealt with the secrets of state. She negotiated the marriage of George of Denmark with James's second daughter Anne, and received superb presents from the King of Denmark in recognition. The Moorish ambassadors had their audience in the apartments whose splendor so astonished Evelyn. It was she who led Charles to concur without murmuring in the capture of Luxembourg by Louis. She calmed the last stirrings of his pride when French fleets entered the Channel without due notice to England, and as the colleague of Barillon she managed all French interests. Neither Charles II nor Louis himself ever questioned her wishes. In January 1684 the king, at her instance, asked that Louis would make the Aubigny estates a duchy with reversion to her son. Barillon addressed his master in indignation against such a pretension, but Louis merely replied that the thing would be done as soon as possible. In November 1684 she was ill, her condition was the only thing spoken of, and Charles passed his days in the sick room. Louis displayed a lively anxiety that her illness should but increase her credit, and to secure her son in case of her death, caused letters of naturalization to be made out in order that he might be able to inherit the estates. Such was the real Queen of England. And what of the nominal Queen? Merely this incident. This day, the Queen being at dinner, the Duchess of Portsmouth, as a lady of the bedchamber, came to wait on her which was not usual, and put the queen into that disorder that tears came into her eyes, whilst the other laughed and turned it into jest. The pity of it, that even now, after more than twenty years of neglect, relieved by short intervals of comparative affection, this poor woman should retain a sense of insult, that ignorant, insignificant as she might be, she could yet be driven to tears, the tears of the wronged wife in the presence of the triumphant concubine. 
it was not until death came into the pageant that she had at length her rightful place we propose to say but little upon the deathbed of charles the dramatic incidents of a scene as characteristic of his peculiarities as any act of his life have given full scope to the genius of the great master of descriptive writing in our language and the sketch which he has drawn so firm and vivid of outline so wonderfully true to character is not to be retouched or tampered with lightly but the eye-witnesses whose accounts are quoted by lord macaulay do not include one whose invaluable memoirs have but recently come to light and from whose rugged narrative every word of which bears the stamp of truth we are able to picture with fidelity otherwise unattainable the first hours of the final scene thomas bruce from whose recollections we have already freely quoted entered upon his last week of waiting on monday january twenty sixth during that week charles was for the first time in his life prevented from taking active walking exercise by a small sore on one heel on the sunday night february first he nevertheless displayed his usual robust appetite and ate a goose egg if not two a thing very hard of digestion after his supper he went according to his custom to the rooms of louise de Kerouaille to amuse himself with her guests and bruce took special notice of his good humour that night it was bruce's function to light him to his bedroom when the king had passed him into the room he handed the candle to the page of the back stairs as he did so the candle was suddenly extinguished although a very large wax candle and without any wind the days of omens were not over and bruce and the page exchanged glances of dismay and shakings of the head charles who had not noticed the incident undressed and went to bed in the best of tempers then followed another incident which recurred vividly to bruce's mind a few days later the conversation turned upon charles's chief interest of the last two years the progress of the palace which he was building at winchester he must he said show the place i so delight in to bruce the very next time that he went down and he added i shall be so happy this week as to have my house covered with lead and god knows bruce adds that saturday following he was put into his coffin the omens were to be soon fulfilled nothing can add to the effect of bruce's own description of what followed and we therefore give it as it stands the king always lying in his own bedchamber we had a bed placed each night to be near him and when the page of the back stairs lighted us from the rooms where we undressed on his retiring we shut up the door on the inside with a brass knob and so went to bed several circumstances made the lodging very uneasy the great grate being filled with scotch coal that burnt all night a dozen dogs that came to our bed and several pendulums that struck at the half quarter and all not going alike it was a continual chiming the king being constantly used to it it was habitual i sleeping but indifferently perceived that the king turned himself sometimes not usual for him he always called in the morning of himself i heard his voice but discovered not any imperfection we had the liberty to go to his bedside in the morning before anybody came in and might entertain him with discourse at pleasure and ask of him anything unfortunately a certain modesty possessed me and besides we had his ear whenever we pleased 
so i rose and turned back the brass knob and the under ones came in to make the fire and i retired to dress myself in our room passing by in the next room to the bedchamber i found there the physicians and chirurgeons that attended to visit his heel mr robert howard a groom of the bedchamber came to me and asked me how the king had slept and if quietly i told him that he had turned sometimes lord said he that is an ill mark and contrary to his custom and then told me that at rising he could not or would not say one word that he was as pale as ashes and gone to his private closet on which i came away presently and sent to mr chiffins the first page of the back stairs and keeper of his closet for to beg of him to come to his chamber for a more bitter morning i never felt and he only in his nightgown mr chiffins telling me he minded not what he said i sent him in again for no other had that liberty on which he came out pale and wan and had not the liberty of his tongue for the earl of craven colonel of the foot guards being there to take the word he showed him the paper where the days of the month were set down with the word and others spoke to him but he answered nothing it being shaving day his barber told him all was ready he always sat with his knees against the window and the barber having fixed the linen on one side went behind the chair to do the same on the other and i standing close to the chair he fell into my arms in the most violent fit of apoplexy dr king that had been a chirurgeon happened to be in the room of his own accord the rest having retired before i asked him if he had any lancets and he replied he had i ordered him to bleed the king without delay which he did and perceiving the blood i went to fetch the duke of york who came so on the instant that he had one shoe and one slipper at my return with the duke of york the king was in bed and in a pretty good state and going on the contrary side where the duke was he perceiving me took me fast by the hand saying i see you love me dying as well as living and thanked me heartily for the orders i gave dr king who was knighted for that service to bleed him as also for sending mr chiffins to persuade him to come out of his closet and then told me that he found himself not well and that he went to take some of his drops commonly called then the king's drops and that he walked about hoping to be better but on my solicitations he came down for there were three or four steps coming out of the closet and he said that coming down his head turned round and he was in danger of falling incidentally bruce he refutes and in a private letter repeats the refutation with exceeding indignation the statement of burnet adopted by lord macaulay that the duchess of portsmouth came now to the king's bedside taking care of him as a wife of a husband bruce was there and saw when he and james entered the room they found not the mistress but the queen and the impostor says it was the duchess of portsmouth bruce then describes the visit on the thursday of sancroft and the bishops and how ken because his voice was like to a nightingale for the sweetness of it was desired to be their spokesman and now the confirmed habit of a lifetime asserted itself sancroft and ken besought him to accept the last rites of their church almost with his dying breath charles resorted to that habit of polite evasion which had served him so often in life the king thanked them very much and told them it was time enough or somewhat to that purpose and modestly waived them which was in my hearing 
and then followed that most dramatic episode when for the last time the nation was tricked that a soul might be saved the drear presence of death and the far past with all its glow of adventure and leaping life were suddenly linked together by the appearance of a priest with the sacred elements the priest was huddleston who had given charles the works of catholic devotion at moseley hall during the escape after worcester and who had remained under his special protection as one of the priests of the queen's household throughout the reign as soon as the king saw the father come in he cried out you that saved my body is now come to save my soul this is literally true on a christian i have my opinions to myself but i hate a lie and to impose the king made a general confession with a most true hearty and sincere repentance weeping and bewailing his sins and he received what is styled all the rites of the church and like a true and hearty penitent and just at high water and full moon at noon victim of his own vices he expired an endeavour has been made in these pages to trace in necessarily rough and broken outline the growth and development of the character of charles the second to illustrate his way of looking at life in many phases to emphasize the demoralizing training of his youth which is his best plea at the bar of history no less than the lost opportunities of his manhood to show how far he conceived and how far he fulfilled the duties of kingship to measure the motives of his actions and the influences to which he bowed the strength of the temptations which assailed him and the depth of his fall setting down naught in malice which may turn aside judgment we relinquish the task while across the fields there comes the muffled clang of bells which bears the news that another sovereign of our race has passed from those whom she many times has called in words which to charles could have no meaning my beloved people she who always sought to have her people with her passes from a mourning nation and from every land of all the wide earth that nation follows her to the grave in the knowledge that her work will endure in the empire which she leaves proud of the memories called up by her name and governance charles died and was buried his funeral was very mean he did not lie in state no mournings were given a monarch who has no beloved people will find at his death no mourning nation he left his country in anxiety not grief his people were not multitudes of men and women whose aspirations whose views of right and wrong whose whole modes of thought might be ennobled by regal example his ministers were not taught that loyal service to their country and loyal service to their sovereign were all one his court was not a place to enter which virtue at least must be stamped upon the passport his guide was not duty it was not even ambition but his guide was self it was ease and amusement and lust the cup of pleasure was filled deep for him and he grasped it with both hands but pleasure is not happiness there is no happiness for him who lives and dies without beliefs without enthusiasms and without love end of section thirty seven read by pamela nagami m d in encino california october twenty twenty one end of charles the second by osmondary